Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 57. Virginia Kane. The Year of the Horse, 1966, and The Year of the Sheep, 1967, offer many opportunities for personal growth and self-improvement. Even if by Christmas Eve 1967, Junior would not be able to take a dry walk in the rain, this nevertheless was a period of great achievement and a much pleasure for him. It was also a disturbing time. While the horse and then the sheep grazed 12 months each, an H-bomb accidentally fell from a B-52 and was lost in the ocean off Spain for two months before being located. Mao Zedong launched his cultural revolution, killing 30 million people to improve Chinese society. James Meredith, civil rights activist, was wounded by gunfire during a march in Mississippi. In Chicago, Richard Speck murdered eight nurses in a row house dormitory, and a month later, Charles Whitman climbed a tower at the University of Texas, from which he shot and killed 12 people. Arthritis forced Sandy Koufax, star pitcher of the Dodgers, to retire. Astronauts Grissom, White, and Chaffee died earthbound in a flash fire to swept their Apollo spacecraft during a full-scale launch simulation. Among the noted who traded fame for eternity were Walt Disney, Spencer Tracy, saxophonist John Coltrane, rest in peace, writer Carson McCullers, Vivian Lee, and Jane Mansfield. Junior Bob McCullers, the heart is a lonely hunter, and though he didn't doubt that she was a fine writer, her work proved to be too weird for his taste. During these years, the world was rattled by earthquakes, swept by hurricanes and typhoons, plagued by floods and droughts and politicians, ravaged by disease. And in Vietnam, hostilities were still underway. Junior wasn't interested in Vietnam anymore, and he wasn't in the least trouble by the other news. These two years were disturbing to him only because of Thomas Vanadium. Indisputably croaked, the maniac cop was nevertheless a threat. For a while, Junior had convinced himself that the quarter in his cheeseburger in December 65 was a meaningless coincidence, unrelated to vanadium. His short tour of the kitchen in search of the perpetrator had given him reason to believe that the diner's sanitary standards were inadequate. Recalling the greasy men on that culinary death squad, he knew that he had been fortunate not to discover a dead rodent spread eagle on the melted cheese, or an old sock. But on March 23, 1966, after a bad day with Frida Bliss, who collected paintings by Jack Lintory, an important new artist, Junior had an experience that rocked him, added significance to the episode in the diner, and made him wish he hadn't donated his pistol to the police project that melted guns into switchblades. During the three months preceding the March incident, however, life was good. From Christmas through February, he dated a beautiful stock analyst and broker, Tammy Bean, who specialized in finding value in companies that had rewarding relationships with brutal dictators. She was also a cat lover, working with the kitten conservatory to save abandoned felines from death in the city pound. She was a charity's investment manager. Within 10 months, Tammy grew 20000 in conservatory funds into a quarter million by speculating in the stock of a South African firm that hit it big selling germ warfare technology to North Korea, Pakistan, India, and the Republic of Tanzania, whose chief import was Sizel. For a while, Junior profited enormously from Tammy's investment advice, and the sex was great. As a thank you for the hefty trading commission she earned, and not incidentally for all the orgasms, Tammy gave him a Rolex. He didn't mind her four cats, didn't even care when the four grew to six, and then to eight. Regrettably, at 2 a.m. February 28th, waking alone in Tammy's bed, Junior sought her out and found her snacking in the kitchen. Forsaking a fork in favor of her fingers, she was eating a horse meat-based cat food out of the can and chasing it with a glass of cream. Thereafter, he was repelled at the prospect of kissing her, and their relationship fell apart. During this same period, having subscribed to the opera, Junior attended a performance of Wagner's The Ring of the Nibola. Thrilled by the music, but unable to understand a word of the play, he arranged German lessons with a private tutor. Meanwhile, he became an accomplished meditator. Guided by Bob Chikane, Junior progressed from concentrative meditation with seed, the mental image of a bowling pin, to meditation without seed. 
This advanced form is far more difficult because nothing is visualized, and the purpose is to concentrate on making the mind utterly blank. Unsupervised meditation without seed in sessions longer than an hour entails risk. To his horror, Junior would discover some of the dangers in September. But first, March 23rd, the bad day with Frida Bliss, and what he discovered in his apartment when he came home that night. As spectacularly busty as the not-yet-dead Jane Mansfield, Frida never wore a bra. In 1966, this free-swinging style was little seen. Initially, Junior didn't realize brawlessness was a declaration of Frida's liberation. He thought it meant she was a slut. He had met her in a university adult extension course entitled Increasing Self-Esteem Through Controlled Screaming. Participants were taught to identify harmful repressive emotions and dissipate them through the authentic vocal imitations of a variety of animals. Highly impressed by the spot-on hyena scream with which Frida perched herself with the childhood emotional trauma inflicted by an authoritarian grandmother, Junior asked her to go out with him. She owned a public relations firm specializing in artists. And over dinner, she rhapsodized about the works of Jack Lintory. His current series of paintings, emaciated babies against backdrops of ripe fruit and other symbols of plenty, had critics swooning. Delighted to be dating someone who lived neck deep in culture, especially after two months with Tammy Bean, the money maven, Junior was surprised he didn't score with Frida on the first date. He was usually irresistible, even to women who weren't sluts. At the end of their second date, however, Frida invited Junior up to her apartment to see her lintery collection and, no doubt, to take a ride on the cane ecstasy machine. She owned several canvases by the painter, received by partial payment of his PR bills. Lintery's work met the criteria of great art, about which Junior had learned in art appreciation courses. It undermined his sense of reality, left him wary, filled him with angst and with loathing for the human condition, and made him wish he hadn't just eaten dinner. As she commented on each masterpiece, Frida grew steadily less coherent. She had drunk a few cocktails, the better part of a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, and two after-dinner brandies. Junior liked women who drank a lot. They were usually amorous or, at least, unresistant. By the time they reached the seventh painting, alcohol and rich French cuisine and Jack Lintory's powerful art combined to devastate Frida. She shuddered, leaned with one hand on a canvas, hung her head, and committed an act of bad PR. Junior hopped backwards just in time, out of the splash zone. This ended any hope of romance, and he was disappointed. A less self-controlled man might have seized a nearby bronze vase, fashioned to resemble dinosaur stool, and stuffed her into it, or vice versa. When Frida finished retching and passed out in a heap, Junior left her on the floor and immediately set out to explore her rooms. Ever since he had searched for Vanadium's house over 14 months ago, Junior had enjoyed learning about other people by touring their homes in their absence. Because he was unwilling to risk arrest for breaking and entering, these explorations were rare, other than in the homes of women whom he had dated long enough to justify swapping keys. Happily, in this golden age of trust and easy relationships, as little as a week of hot sex could lead to key-level commitment. The sole drawback? Junior frequently had to change his locks. Now, since he didn't intend to date this woman again, he grabbed the only chance he might ever had to learn the intimate, eccentric details of her life. He began in her kitchen, with the contents of the refrigerator and cupboards, concluding his tour in her bedroom. Of the curiosities Junior uncovered, Frida's weapons interested him the most. Guns were stashed throughout the apartment, revolvers, pistols, and two pistol-grip shotguns, 16 altogether. Most of these firearms were loaded and ready for use, but five remained in their original boxes in the back of her bedroom closet. Evidently, considering the original bill of sale taped to each of the five box handguns, she must have acquired all the weapons legally. Junior didn't find anything to explain her paranoia, though to his surprise, he discovered six books by Caesar Zed in her small library. The pages were dog-eared. The text was heavily underlined. Clearly, she had learned nothing from her reading. No sincere and thoughtful student of Zed will be as sorely lacking in self-control as Frida Bliss. Junior took one of the box guns, a 9mm semi-automatic. Months would probably pass before she noticed a pistol missing from the back of her closet, and by then, she wouldn't know who had taken it. A supply of ammunition lined the bottom of all the dressers and bureau drawers, 
concealed by underwear and other garments. Junior appropriated a box of 9mm cartridges, leaving Frida unconscious and reeking, a condition in which her brawlessness had no power to arouse him. Junior left. Twenty minutes later, at home, he poured sherry over ice. Sipping, he stood in the living room, admiring his two paintings. With a portion of his profits from Tammy Bean's stock picks, Junior had bought a second painting by Sklint. Titled, In the Baby's Brain Lies the Parasite of Doom, version 6, it was so exquisitely repellent that the artist's genius could not be in doubt. Eventually, Junior crossed the room to stand before Industrial Woman in all her scrap metal glory. Her soup-pot breast reminded him of Frida's equally abundant bosom, and unfortunately, her mouth, opened wide in a silent shriek, reminded him of Frida retching. His enjoyment of the art was diminished by these associations, and as Junior turned away from Industrial Woman, his attention was suddenly captured by the quarters. Three lay on the floor at her gear wheel and meat cleaver feet. They had not been here earlier. Her metal hands were still crossed defensively over her breasts. The artist had welded large hexagonal nuts to her raked teen fingers to suggest knuckles, and balanced on one nut was a fourth quarter, as though she had been practicing while Junior was out, as though someone had been there this evening to teach her this coin trick. The 9mm pistol and the ammunition were on the foyer table. With trembling hands, Junior tore open the boxes and loaded the gun. Trying to ignore its phantom toe, which itched furiously, he searched the apartment. He proceeded carefully, determined not to shoot himself in the foot accidentally this time. Vanadium wasn't here, alive or dead. Junior phoned a 24-hour-a-day locksmith and paid premium post-midnight rates to have the double dead bolts rekeyed. The following morning, he canceled his German lessons. It was an impossible language. The words were enormously long. Besides, he couldn't any longer afford to spend endless hours either learning a new language or attending the opera. His life was too full, leaving him insufficient time for the Bartholomew search. Animal Instinct told Junior that the business with the quarter in the diner and now these quarters in his living room were related to his failure to find Bartholomew, Seraphim White's bastard child. He couldn't logically explain the connection, but as Zed teaches, Animal Instinct is the only unalloyed truth we'll ever know. Consequently, he scheduled more time every day with the phone book. He had obtained directories for all nine counties that, with the city itself, comprised the Bay Area. Someone named Bartholomew had adopted Seraphim's son and named the boy after himself. Junior applied the patience learned through meditation to the task at hand, and instinctively, he soon evolved a motivating mantra that continuously cycled through his mind when he studied the telephone directories. Find the father, kill the son. Seraphim's child had been alive as long as Naomi had been dead, almost 15 months. In 15 months, Junior should have located the little bastard and eliminated him. Occasionally, he woke in the night and heard himself murmuring the mantra aloud, which apparently he had been repeating ceaselessly in his sleep. Find the father. Kill the son. In April, Junior discovered three Bartholomews. Investigating these targets, prepared to commit homicide, he learned that none had a son named Bartholomew or had ever adopted a child. In May, he found another Bartholomew, not the right one. Junior kept a file on each man, nevertheless, in case instinct later told him that one of them was, in fact, his mortal enemy. He could have killed them all, just to be safe, but a multitude of dead Bartholomews, even spread over several jurisdictions, would sooner or later attract too much police attention. On the 3rd of June, he found another useless Bartholomew, and on Saturday the 25th, two deeply disturbing events occurred. He switched on his kitchen radio only to discover the paperback writer yet another Beatles song had climbed to the top of the charts and he received a call from a dead woman. Tommy James and the Shondells, good American boys, had a record farther down the charts. Hanky Panky, the junior felt was better than the Beatles tune. The failure of his countrymen to support homegrown talent aggravated him. The nation seemed eager to surrender his culture to foreigners. The phone rang at 3.20 in the afternoon, just after he had switched off the radio in disgust. Sitting at the breakfast nook, the Oakland telephone directory opened in front of him. He almost said, find the father killed the son, instead of, hello? Is Bartholomew there? A woman asked. Stunned, Junior had no answer. Please, I must speak to Bartholomew, the caller pleaded with quiet urgency. 
Her voice was soft, almost a whisper and charged with anxiety, but under other circumstances it would have been sexy. Who is this? He demanded, although for a demand the words came out too thin, too squeaky, like, who is this? <clears throat> who, is, who is who is this? Who is this? <clears throat> deep voice, deep voice. Who is this? Too deep. Okay, uh, whom calls me? I've got to warn Bartholomew. I've got to. Who is this? Fathoms of silence flooded the line. Still, she listened. He sensed her there, though as if at a great depth. Recognizing the danger of saying the wrong thing, the potential for self-incrimination, Junior clenched his jaw and waited. When at last the caller spoke again, her voice sounded kingdoms away. Will you tell Bartholomew? Junior pressed the receiver so tightly to his head that his ear ached. Further away still, Will you tell him? Tell him what? Tell him Victoria called to warn him. Click. She was gone. He didn't believe in the restless dead. Not for a minute. Because he hadn't heard Victoria Bressler speak in so long. And then only on two occasions. That's day and night. Ugh. And because the woman on the phone had spoken so softly, Junior couldn't tell whether or not their voices were one and the same. No. Impossible. He had killed Victoria almost a year and a half before this phone call. When you were dead, you were gone forever. Junior didn't believe in gods, devils, heaven, hell, life after death. He put his faith in one thing, himself. Yet through the summer in 1966, following this call, he acted like a man who was haunted. A sudden draft, even if warm, chilled him and caused him to turn in circles, seeking the source. In the middle of the night, the most innocent of sounds could scramble him from bed and send him on a search of the apartment, flinching from harmless shadows and twitching at looming invisibilities that he imagined he saw at the edges of his vision. Sometimes, while shaving or combing his hair, as he was looking in the bathroom or foyer mirror, Junior thought that he glimpsed a presence, dark and vaporous, less substantial than smoke, standing or moving behind him. At other times, this entity seemed to be within the mirror. He couldn't focus on it, study it, because the moment he became aware of the presence, it was gone. These were stress-induced flights of the imagination, of course. Increasingly, he used meditation to relieve stress. He was so skilled to concentrate on meditation without seed, blanking his mind, that half an hour of it was as refreshing as a night's sleep. Late Monday afternoon, September 19th, Junior returned wearily to his apartment from another fruitless investigation of a Bartholomew, this one across the bay in Corte Madera. Exhausted by his unending quest, depressed by lack of success, he sought refuge in meditation. In his bedroom, wearing nothing but a pair of briefs, he settled onto the floor on a silk-covered pillow filled with goose down. With a sigh, he assumed the lotus position, spine straight, legs crossed, hands at breast with the palms up. One hour, he announced, establishing a countdown. In 60 minutes, his internal clock will rouse him from a meditative state. When he closed his eyes, he saw a bowling pin, a leftover image from his with seed days. In less than a minute, he was able to make the pin dematerialize, filling his mind with featureless, soundless, soothing, white nothingness. White nothingness. After a while, a voice broke the vacuum-perfect silence. Bob Chicane, his instructor. Bob gently encouraged him to return by degrees from the deep meditative state. Return, return, return. This is the memory, not a real voice. Even after you became an accomplished meditator, the mind resisted this degree of blissful oblivion and tried to sabotage with oral and visual memories. Using all his powers of concentration, which were formidable, Junior sought to silence the Phantom Chicane. At first, the voice steadily faded, but soon it grew louder again and more insistent. In his smooth whiteness, Junior felt the pressure on his eyes, and then came visual hallucinations, disturbing his deep inner peace. He felt someone peel up his eyelids and bob Chicane's worried face, with the sharp features of a fox, curly black hair, and a walrus mustache were inches from his. He assumed that Chicane wasn't real. Soon, he realized that this was a mistaken assumption, because when his instructor began trying to unknot him from the lotus position, 
A defensive numbness deserted Junior, and he became aware of pain. Excruciating. His entire body throbbed from his neck to the tips of his nine toes. His legs were the worst, filled with hot, twisting agony. Chikane wasn't alone. Sparky Vox, the building superintendent, approached behind him and hovered. 72 yet spry as a monkey, Sparky didn't walk so much as scamper like a capuchin. I hope it was alright I let him in, Mr. Kane. Junior had a capuchin's overbite too. He told me it was an emergency. After prying Junior out of the meditative position, Chikane pushed him onto his back and vigorously, indeed violently, massaged his thighs and calves. Really bad muscle spasms, he explained. Junior realized a thick drool oozed out of the right corner of his mouth. Shakily, he raised one hand to wipe his face. Apparently, he had been drooling for a long time. Where his chin and throat were not sticky, a crust of dry saliva glazed his skin. When you didn't answer the doorbell, man, I just knew what must have happened, Chikane told Junior. Then he said something to Sparky, who capered out of the room. Junior could not speak, nor even mule in agony. All of the saliva had been draining forward, out of his open mouth, for so long that his throat was parched and raw. He felt as though he had munched on a snack of salted razor blades that were now stuck in his pharynx. His rattling wheeze sounded like scuttling scarabs. The rough massage had only just begun to bring a little relief to Junior's legs when Sparky returned with six stoppered rubber bags full of ice. This was all the bags they had down at the drugstore. Chikane packed the ice against Junior's thighs. Severe spasms caused inflammation. 20 minutes of ice alternating with 20 minutes of massage until the worst passes. The worst, actually, was yet to come. By now, Junior realized that he had been locked in a meditative trance for at least 18 hours. He had settled into the lotus position at 5 o'clock Monday afternoon, and Bob Chikana had shown up for the regular instruction session at 11 Tuesday morning. You're better at concentrated meditation without seed than anyone I've ever known, even me. That's why you, especially, should never undertake a long session unsupervised, Chikane scolded. At the very least, the very least, you should use your electronic meditation timer. I don't see it here, do I? Guiltily, Junior shook his head. No, I don't see it, Chikane repeated. There's no benefit to a meditation marathon. Twenty minutes is enough, man. Half an hour at the most. You relied on your eternal clock, didn't you? Abass, Junior nodded. And you set yourself for an hour, didn't you? Before Junior could nod, the worst arrived. Paralytic bladder seizures. He had been thankful that during the long trance he hadn't wet himself. Now, he would have gladly accepted any amount of humiliation rather than suffer these vicious cramps. Oh my lord, Shikane groaned as he and Sparky half-carried Junior into the bathroom. The need for relief was tremendous, inexpressible, and the urge to urinate was irresistible, and yet he could not let go. For more than 18 hours, his natural urinary process had been overridden by concentrated meditation. Now, the golden vault was locked tight. Every time that he strained for release, a new and more hideous cramp savaged him. He felt as if Lake Mead filled his distended bladder, while Boulder Dam had been erected in his urethra. In his entire life, Junior had never suffered this much pain without first having killed someone. Reluctant to depart until certain that his student was out of danger physically, emotionally, and mentally, Bob Chikane stayed until 3.30. When he left, he broke some bad news to Junior. I can't keep you on my student list, man. I'm sorry, but you're way too intense, man. Way too. Everything you do, all the women you run through, this whole art thing, whatever those phone books are about, now even meditation, like way too intense for me, too obsessive. Sorry, man. Have a good life, man. Alone, Junior sat in the breakfast nook with a pot of coffee and an entire Sara Lee chocolate fudge cake. After the paralytic bladder seizures had passed and Junior drained Lake Mead, Chikane recommended plenty of caffeine and sugar to guard against an unlikely but not impossible spontaneous return to a trance state. Anyway, after pumping alpha waves for as long as you just did, 
you shouldn't actually need to sleep anytime soon. In fact, although weak and achy, Junior felt mentally refreshed and wonderfully alert. The time had come for him to think more seriously about his situation and his future. Self-improvement remained a laudable goal, but his efforts needed to be more focused. He had the capacity to be exceptional at anything to which he applied himself. Bob Chikane had been right about that. Junior was far more intense than other men, possessed the greater gifts and the energy to use them. In retrospect, he realized meditation didn't suit him. It was a passive activity, while by nature he was a man of action, happiest when doing. He had taken refuge in meditation because he had been frustrated by his continuing failure in the Bartholomew hunt and disturbed by his apparently paranormal experiences with quarters and with phone calls from the dead. More deeply disturbed than he had realized or had been able to admit. Fear of the unknown is a weakness, for it presumes dimensions to life beyond human control. Zed teaches that nothing is beyond our control, that nature is just a mindlessly grinding machine with no more mysteries in it than we will find in applesauce. Furthermore, fear of the unknown is a weakness also because it humbles us. Humility, Caesar Zed declares, is strictly for losers. For the purpose of social and financial advancement, we must pretend to be humble, shuffle our feet and duck our heads and make self-deprecating remarks because deceit is the currency of civilization. But if ever we wallow in genuine humility, we'll be no different from the mass of humanity which said calls a sentimental sludge in love with failure and the prospect of its own doom. Gorging on fudge cake and coffee to guard against a spontaneous lapse into meditative catatonia, Junior manfully admitted that he had been weak, that he had reacted to the unknown with fear and retreat instead of bold confrontation. Because each of us can trust no one in this world but ourselves, self-deceit is dangerous. He liked himself better for this frank admission of weakness. Chastened by these recent events, he vowed to stop meditating, to avoid all passive responses to the challenges of life. He must explore the unknown rather than flinch from it in fear. Besides, through his explorations, he would prove that the unknown was all tapioca or apple saucer or whatever. He must begin by learning as much as possible about ghosts, hauntings, and the vengeance of the dead. During the remainder of 1966, only two apparently paranormal events occurred in Junior Kane's life. The first on Wednesday, October 5th. On a culture stroll, checking out the news work in a circuit of his favorite art galleries, Junior arrived eventually at the show windows of Gallery Coquine. Prominently displayed to passerbys on the busy street was a sculpture of Roth Griskin. Two large pieces, each weighing at least 500 pounds, and seven much smaller bronzes elevated on pedestals. Griskin, a former convict, had served 11 years for second-degree murder before the lobbying efforts of a coalition of artists and writers had won his parole. He possessed a huge talent. Known before Griskin had ever managed to express this degree of violence and rage in a medium of bronze, and Junior had long kept the artist's work on his short list of desired acquisitions. In the gallery windows, eight of the nine sculptures were so disturbing that many passerbys, catching sight of them, blanched and looked away and hurried on. Not everyone could be a connoisseur. The ninth piece was not art, certainly not a work by Griskin, and could disturb no one half as much as it rattled Junior. Upon a black pedestal stood a pewter candlestick, identical to the one that had cracked the skull of Thomas Vanadium and had added dimension to the cop's previously pan-flat face. The gray pewter appeared to be mottled with a black substance, perhaps char, as though it had been soiled in a fire. At the top of the candlestick, the drip pan and the socket were marked by a wine-red drizzle, the color of well-aged bloodstains. From these ominous spatters, several fibers bristled, having stuck to the pewter when the drizzle was still wet. They appeared to be human hairs. Fear clotted in Junior's veins, and he stood like an impacted embolism in the busy flow of pedestrians, certain that he himself would at any moment succumb to a stroke. He closed his eyes, counted to ten, opened them. The candlestick still rested atop the pedestal. Reminding himself that nature was merely a dumb machine, utterly devoid of mystery, and that the unknown would always prove familiar if he dared to lift his veil, Junior discovered he could move. Each of his feet seemed to weigh as much as one of Roth Griskin's cast bronzes, but he crossed the sidewalk and went into Gallery Coquin. 
Neither the customers nor staff could be found in the first of the three large rooms. Only cheaper galleries were crowded with browsers and unctuous sales personnel. In an establishment as upscale as Kokin, the hoi polloi were discouraged from gawking, while the high value and extreme desirability of the art was made evident by the staff's almost pathological aversion to promoting the merchandise. The second and third rooms proved to be deserted as well, and as muffled as the cushioned spaces of a funeral home, but an office was tucked discreetly in the back of the final chamber. As Junior crossed the third room, apparently monitored by closed-circuit security cameras, a man glided out of the office to greet him. This gallerier was tall, with silver hair, chiseled features, and the all-knowing imperious manner of a gynecologist of royalty. He wore a well-tailored gray suit, and his gold Rolex was the very watch that Roth Griskin might have killed him for in his salad days. I'm interested in one of the smaller Griskins, said Junior, managing to appear calm, although his mouth was dry with fear and his mind spun with crazy images of the maniac cop, dead and rotting, but nevertheless lurching around San Francisco. Yes, the silver-haired eminence replied, wrinkling his nose as though he suspected that this customer would ask if the display pedestal was included in the price. I'm captivated more by painting than I am by most dimensional work, Junior explained. Really, the only sculpture I've acquired is peripherance. Industrial Woman, which he had purchased for a little more than $9,000 less than 18 months ago and at another gallery, would fetch at least 30000 in the current market. So rapidly had Bavel Peripherin's reputation risen. The gallerier's icy demeanor thawed marginally at this proof of taste and financial resources. He either smiled or grimaced at a vague but unpleasant smell, hard to tell which, and identified himself as the owner, Maxine Coquine. The piece that's intrigued me, Junior revealed, is the one that's rather like a candlestick. It's quite different from the others. Professing befuddlement, the gallerier led the way through three rooms to the front windows, gliding across the polished maple floors as though he were on wheels. The candlestick was gone. The pedestal on which it stood now held a griskin bronze so devastatingly brilliant that one look at it would give nightmares to nuns and assassins alike. When Junior attempted to explain himself, Maxine Coquine summoned an expression no less dubious than that of a policeman listening to the alibi of a suspect with bloody hands. Then, I'm quite sure the Roth Griskin does not make candlesticks. If that's what you're looking for, I'd recommend the housewares department at Gump's. Both angry and mortified, yet still fearful, a walking multimedia collage of emotions, Junior left the gallery. Outside, he turned to look at the display windows. He expected to see the candlestick, supernaturally apparent only from this side of the window, but it wasn't there. Throughout the autumn, Junior read book after book about ghosts, poltergeists, haunted houses, ghost ships, seances, spirit rapping, spirit manifestation, spirit writing, spirit recording, trance speaking, conjuration, exorcism, astral projection, Ouija board revelation, and needlepoint. He had come to believe that every well-rounded, self-improved person ought to have a craft at which he excelled, and needlepoint appealed to him more than either pottery making or decoupage. For pottery, he would require a potter's wheel and a cumbersome kiln, and decoupage was too messy, with all the glue and liqueur. By December, he began his first project, a small pillowcase featuring a geometric border surrounding a quote from Caesar's Ed. Humility is for losers. At 3.22 in the morning, December 13th, following a busy day of conducting ghost research, seeking Bartholomew's in the telephone book, and working on his needlepoint, Junior awakened to singing. A single voice, no instrumental accompaniment, a woman. Initially, lying drowsily in the sumptuous comfort of Bertizzi cotton sheets with black silk piping, Junior assumed that he was in a twilight state between wakefulness and sleep, and that the singing must be a lingering fragment of a dream. Although rising and falling, the voice remained so faint that he didn't at once identify the tune, but when he recognized someone to watch over me, he sat up in bed and threw back the covers. Switching on the lights as he went, Junior sought the source of the serenade. He carried the 9mm pistol, which would have been useless against a spirit visitor. But his extensive reading about ghosts hadn't convinced him that they were real. His faith in the effectiveness of bullets, and pewter candlesticks for that matter, remained undiminished. Although faint and somewhat hollow, the woman's crooning was pure and so on note that this acapella rendition fell as pleasantly on the ear as any voice sweetened by an orchestra. 
Yet the song had a disturbing quality as well, an eerie note of yearning, longing, a piercing sadness. For want of a better word, her voice was haunting. Junior stalked her, but she eluded him. Always, the song seemed to arise from the next room, but when he passed through the doorway into that space, the voice then sounded as if it came from the room that he had just left. Three times the singing faded away, but twice, just when he thought that she had finished, she began to croon again. The third time, the silence lasted. This venerable old building, as solidly constructed as a castle, was well insulated. Noises in other apartments rarely penetrated the juniors. Never before had he heard a neighbor's voice distinctly enough to comprehend the words spoken, or, in this case, sung. He doubted that the singer had been Victoria Bressler, dead nurse, but he believed this is the same voice he had heard on the telephone back on the 25th of June, when someone purporting to be Victoria had called with an urgent warning for Bartholomew. At 3.31 a.m., even the early winter dawn wasn't near, yet Junior was too awake to return to bed. Though sweet, though melancholy, never ominous, the ghostly singer had left him feeling threatened. He considered taking a shower and getting an early start on the day, but he kept remembering Psycho, Anthony Perkins dressed in women's clothes and the wielding a butcher knife. Needlepoint brought no sanctuary. Junior's hands trembled just badly enough to make accurate stitching impossible. His mood ruled out reading about poltergeists and such. Instead, he sat in the breakfast nook with his phone books and resumed the grueling search for Bartholomew. Find the father? kill the son. In just nine days, Junior bedded four beautiful women, one on Christmas Eve, the next on Christmas night, the third on New Year's Eve, and the fourth on New Year's Day. For the first time in his life, and on all four occasions, his joy in the act was less than complete. Not that he failed to perform well. As always, he was a bull, a stallion, an insatiable satyr. None of his lovers complained. None had the energy for complaint when he was finished with them. Yet something was missing. He felt hollow, unfinished. As beautiful as they were, none of these women satisfied him as profoundly as Naomi had satisfied him. He wondered if the missing thing might be love. With Naomi, sex had been glorious because they were bonded on multiple levels, all deeper than the mere physical. They had been so close, so emotionally and intellectually entwined, that in making love to her... He had been making love to himself, and he would never experience a greater intimacy than that. He yearned for a new heartmate. He was wise enough to know that no amount of yearning could transform the wrong woman into the right one. Love couldn't be demanded, planned, or manufactured. Love always came as a surprise, snuck up on you when you least expected it, like Anthony Perkins in a dress. He could only wait and hope. Hope became easier to sustain when late 1966 and 1967 brought the biggest advance in women's fashion since the invention of the sewing needle, the miniskirt, and then the micro-mini. Already, Mary Quant, of all things a British designer, had conquered England and Europe with her splendid creation, and now she brought America out of the dark ages of psychopathic modesty. Everywhere in the fabled city, calves and knees and magnificent expanses of taut thighs were on display. This brought out the dreamy romantic in Junior, and more than ever he yearned desperately for the perfect woman, the ideal lover, the matching half of his incomplete heart. Yet the most enduring relationship he had all year was with the ghostly singer. On February 18th, he returned home in the afternoon from a class in spirit channeling and heard singing as he opened his front door. That same voice and the same hateful song, as faint as before, repeatedly rising and falling. Quickly, he searched for the source, but in less than a minute, before he could trace the voice, it faded away. Unlike that night in December, this time the singing didn't resume. Junior was disturbed that the mysterious Chantus had been performing when he wasn't home. He felt violated, invaded. No one had actually been here, and he still didn't believe in ghosts, so he didn't think a spirit had been wandering his home in his absence. Nevertheless, his sense of violation grew as he paced these now songless rooms, mystified and frustrated. On April 19th, the Unmanned Surveyor 3, after landing on the lunar surface, 
began transmitting photos to Earth. And when Junior stepped out of his morning shower, he again heard the eerie singing, which seemed to arise from a place more distant, more alien than the moon. Naked, dripping, he roamed the apartment. As on the night of December 13th, the voice seemed to arise from thin air, ahead of him, then behind him, to the right, but now to the left. This time, however, the singing lasted longer than before, long enough for him to become suspicious of the heating ducts. These rooms had ten-foot ceilings, and the ducts opened high on the walls. Using a three-step folding stool, he was able to get near enough to one of the vent plates in the living room to determine whether it might be the source of the song. Just then, the singing stopped. Later in the month, from Sparky Vox, Junior learned the building had a four-pipe, fan-coil heating system serving discrete ductwork for each apartment. Voices couldn't carry from resident to resident in the heating cooling system because no apartments shared ducting. Throughout the spring, summer, and autumn of 1967, Junior met new women, better a few, and had no doubt that each of his conquests experiences with him was something she had never known before. Yet he still suffered from an emptiness in the heart. He chased after none of these lovelies beyond a few dates, and none of them pursued him when he was done with them, although surely they were distressed if not bereft of losing him. The spectral singer didn't exhibit her blood and bone sister's reluctance to pursue her man. On a morning in July, Junior was visiting the public library, pouring through the stacks in search of exotic volumes on the occult, when the phantom voice rose nearby. Here the singing sounded softer in his apartment, little more than a murmur, and also threadier. Two staff members were at the front desk when last he had seen them, out of sight now and too far away to hear the crooning. Junior had been waiting at the doors when the library opened, and thus far he had encountered no other patrons. He couldn't see into the next aisle through the gaps between rows of books, because the shelves had solid backs. The tunes made maze walls, a webwork of words. He first eased from aisle to aisle, but soon moved more quickly, convinced that the singer would be found beyond the next turn, and then the next. Was that her trailing shadow he had glimpsed, slipping around the corner ahead of him? Her womanly scent lingering in the air after her passage? Into new avenues of the labyrinth he moved, but then back again, back upon his own trail, twisting, turning, from the occult to modern literature, from history to popular science, and here the occult once more. Always the shadow glimpsed so fleetingly and so peripherally that it might have been imagination. The scent of a woman, no sooner detected than lost again the perfumes of aging paper and bindery glue. Twisting, turning, until abruptly he stopped, breathing hard, halted by the realization that he hadn't heard the singing in some time. Into the autumn of 1967. Junior reviewed hundreds of thousands of phone listings, and occasionally he located a rare Bartholomew in San Rafael or Marinwood, in Greenbrae or San Anselmo, located and investigated and cleared them of any connection with Seraphim White's bastard baby. Between new women and needlepoint pillows, he participated in seances, attended lectures given by ghost hunters, visited haunted houses, and read more strange books. He even suffered a camera of a famous medium whose photographs sometimes revealed the auras of benign or malevolent presences hovering in the vicinity of her subject, though in his case, she could discern no telltale sign of a spirit. On October 15th, Junior acquired a third squint painting, The Heart is Home to Worms and Beetles, Ever Squirming, Ever Swarming, version 3. To celebrate, upon leaving the gallery, he went to the coffee shop at the Fairmont Hotel, atop Knob Hill, determined to have a beer and a cheeseburger. Although he ate more meals in restaurants than not, he hadn't ordered a burger in 22 months, since finding the quarter embedded in a half-melted slice of cheddar in December of 65. Indeed, since then, he had never risked a sandwich of any kind in a restaurant, limiting his selections to food that were served open on the plate. In the Fairmont coffee shop, Junior ordered french fries, a cheeseburger, and coleslaw. He requested that the burger be served cooked, but unassembled. The halves of the buns turned face up, the meat patty positioned separately on the plate, one slice each of tomato and onion arranged beside the patty, and a slice of unmelted cheese on a separate dish. Puzzled but accommodating, the waiter delivered lunch precisely as requested. Junior lifted the patty with a fork found no quarter under it, and put the meat on one half of the bun. 
He constructed the sandwich from these fixings, added ketchup and mustard, and took a great, delicious, satisfying bite. When he noticed a blonde staring at her from a nearby booth, he smiled and winked at her. Although she was not attractive enough to meet his standards, there was no reason to be impolite. She must have sensed his assessment of her and realized that she had little chance of charming him, for she turned at once away and never looked in his direction again. With the successful consumption of the burger and with the addition of the third squint to his collection, Junior felt more upbeat than he had been in quite a while. Contributing to his better mood was the fact that he hadn't heard the Phantom Singer in longer than three months, since the library in July. Two nights later, from a dream of worms and beetles, he woke to her singing. He surprised himself by sitting up in bed and shouting, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Faintly, someone to watch over me continued unabated. Dream was to shout shut up more than he realized because the neighbors began to pound on the walls to silence him. Nothing he had learned about the supernatural had led him closer to a belief in ghosts and all that ghosts implied. His faith still reposed entirely in Enoch Kane Jr. and he refused to make room on his altar for anyone or anything other than himself. He squirmed deep under the covers, clamped a plump pillow over his head to muffle the singing, and chanted, Find the father, kill the son, until at last he fell exhausted and asleep. In the morning, at breakfast, from this calmer perspective, he looked back at his tantrum in the middle of the night and wondered if he might be in psychological trouble. He decided not. In November and December, Junior study arcane texts on the supernatural, went through new women at a pace prodigious even for him, found three new Bartholomews, and finished ten needlepoint pillows. Nothing in his reading offered a satisfactory explanation for what was happening to him. None of the women filled the hole in his heart, and all the Bartholomews were harmless. Only the needlepoint offered any satisfaction, but though Junior was proud of his craftsmanship, he knew that a grown man couldn't find fulfillment in stitchery alone. On December 18th, as the Beatles' Hello Goodbye rocketed up the charts, Junior boiled over with frustration at his inability to find either love or Seraphim's baby. So he drove across the Golden Gate Bridge to Marin County and all the way to the town of Terra Linda, where he killed Bartholomew Prosser. Prosser, 56, a widower, an accountant, had a 30-year-old daughter, Zelda, who was an attorney in San Francisco. Junior had driven to Terra Linda previously to research the accountant. He already knew Prosser had no connection to Seraphim's faithful child. Of the three Bartholomews that he had turned up recently, he chose Prosser because... Burdened by the name Enoch, Junior felt sympathy for any girl whose parents had cursed her with Zelda. The accountant lived in an old white Georgian house on a street lined with huge old evergreens. At 8 o'clock in the evening, Junior parked two blocks past the Target house. He walked back to the Prosser residence, gloved hands in the pockets of his raincoat, collar turned up. Dense, white, slowly billowing masses of fog rolled through the neighborhood, scented with wood smoke from numerous fireplaces, as though everything north to the Canadian border was ablaze. Junior's breath smoked from him as if he contained a seething fire of his own. He felt the sheen of condensation arise on his face, cold and invigorating. At many houses, strings of Christmas lights painted patterns of color at the eaves, around the window frames, and along the porch railings. Also blurred by fog, the junior seemed to be moving through a dreamscape with Japanese lanterns. The night was hushed, but for the barking of a dog in the great distance. Hollow, far softer than the ghostly singing that had recently haunted Junior, the rough voice of his hound nevertheless stared him, spoke to an essential aspect of his heart. At the Prosser house, he rang the bell and waited. As punctilious as you might expect any good accountant to be, Bartholomew Prosser didn't delay long enough to make it necessary for Junior to ring the bell twice. The porch light came on. In the far away, at the limits of night and fog, the dog bit off his bark in expectation. Less cautious than the typical accountant, perhaps mellow in this season of peace, Prosser opened the door without hesitation. This is for Zelda, Junior said, ramming forward across the threshold with a knife. Wild exhilaration burst through him like pyrotechnics blazing in a night sky, reminiscent of the rush of excitement that followed his bold action on the fire tower. Happily, Junior had no emotional connection to Prosser, as he had to beloved Naomi. Therefore, the purity of his experience wasn't diluted by regret or empathy. 
so quick this violence over even as it began. Because he had no interest in aftermath, however, Junior suffered no disappointment at the briefness of the thrill. The past was past, and as he closed the front door and stepped around the body, he focused on the future. He acted boldly, recklessly, without scoping the territory to be sure Prosser was alone. The accountant lived by himself, but a visitor might be present. Prepared for any contingency, Junior listened to the house until he was certain that he needed the knife for no one else. He went directly to the kitchen and drew a glass of water at the sink faucet. He swallowed two anti tablets that he had brought with him to guard against vomiting. Earlier, before leaving home, he had taken a preventive dose of paragoric. For now, at least, his bowels were quiet. As always, curious about how others lived, or in this case, had lived, Junior explored the house, poking in drawers and closets. For a widower, Bartholomew Prosser was neat and well-organized. As home tours went, this one was notably less interesting than most. The accountant appeared to have no secret life, no perverse interest that he hid from the world. The most shameful thing Junior found was the art on the walls. Tasteless, sentimentalized realism, bright landscapes, still lifes of fruit and flowers, even an idealized group portrait of Prosser, his late wife, and Zelda. Not one painting spoke to the bleakness and terror of the human condition. Mere decoration, not art. In the living room stood a Christmas tree, and under the tree lay prettily wrapped presents. Junior enjoyed opening all of them, but he didn't find anything he wanted to keep. He left by the back door to avoid the aftermath seeping across the foyer front. Fog enveloped him, cool and refreshing. On the drive home, Junior dropped the knife down a storm drain in Larkspur. He tossed the gloves in a dumpster in Corte Madera. In the city again, he stopped long enough to donate the raincoat to a homeless man who didn't notice a few odd stains. This pathetic hobo happily accepted the fine coat, donned it, and then cursed his benefactor, spat at him, and threatened him with a claw hammer. Junior was too much of a realist to have expected gratitude. In his apartment once more, enjoying a cognac and a handful of pistachios as Monday changed to Tuesday, he decided that he should make preparations for the possibility that he might one day leave incriminating evidence in spite of his precautions. He ought to convert a portion of his assets into easily portable and anonymous wealth, like gold coins and diamonds. Establishing two or three alternate identities with documentation will also be wise. During the past few hours, he had changed his life again, as dramatically as he had changed it on that fire tower almost three years ago. When he pushed Naomi, profit was the motive. He killed Victoria and Vanadium in self-defense. Those three deaths were necessary. He stabbed Prosser, however, merely to relieve his frustration and to enliven the dull routine of a life made dreary by the tedious Bartholomew hunt and by loveless sex. In return for more excitement, he assumed greater risk. To mitigate risk, he must have insurance. In bed, lights out, Junior marveled at his daredevil spirit. He never stopped surprising himself. Neither guilt nor remorse plagued him. Good and bad, right and wrong were not issues to him. Actions were either effective or ineffective, wise or stupid, but they were all value neutral. He didn't wonder about his sanity either, as a less self-improved man might have done. No madman strives to enhance his vocabulary or to deepen his appreciation for culture. He did wonder why he had chosen this night of all nights to become even more fearless of an adventurer, rather than a month ago or a month hence. Instinct told him that he felt the need to test himself, that a crisis was fast approaching, and that to be ready for it, he must be confident that he could do what needed to be done when crunch came. Slipping into sleep, Junior suspected that Prosser might have been less larked in preparation. Further preparation, the purchase of gold coins and diamonds, the establishment of false identities, had to be delayed due to the hives. An hour short of dawn, Junior was awakened by a fierce itching, not limited to his phantom toe. His entire body, over every plane and into every crevice, prickled and tingled and burned as with fever and itched. Shuddering, rubbing furiously at himself, he stumbled into the bathroom. In the mirror, he confronted a face he hardly recognized, swollen, lumpy, peppered with red hives. For 48 hours, he pumped himself full of prescription antihistamines, immersed himself in bathtubs brimming with numbingly cold water, and lathered himself with soothing lotions. In misery, 
Ripped by self-pity, he dared not think about the 9mm pistol he had stolen from Frieda Bliss. By Thursday, the eruption passed from him. Because he had had the self-control not to claw at his face or hands, he was presentable enough to venture out into the city. Although people in the streets could have seen the weeping scabs and inflamed scratches that tattooed his body and limbs, they would have fled with the grim certainty that the Black Plague, or worse, was loose among them. During the following 10 days, he withdrew money from several accounts. He converted selected paper assets into cash as well. He also sought a supplier of high-quality counterfeit ID. This proved easier than he anticipated. A surprising number of the women who had been his lovers were recreational drug users, and over the past couple years, he had met several dealers who supplied them. From the least savory of these, he purchased $5,000 worth of cocaine and LSD to establish his credibility, after which he inquired about forged documents. For a finder's fee, Junior was put in touch with a papermaker named Google. This was not his real name, but with his crossed eyes, large rubbery lips, and massively prominent Adam's apple, he was as perfect a Google as ever they had been. Because drugs foil all efforts at self-improvement, Junior had no use for the cocaine and acid. He didn't dare sell them to recover his money. Even $5,000 wasn't worth risking arrest. Instead, he gave the pharmaceuticals to a group of young boys playing basketball in a schoolyard and wished them a Merry Christmas. The 24th of December began with rain, but the storm moved south soon after dawn. Sunshine tinseled the city, and the streets filled with last-minute holiday shoppers. Junior joined the throngs, although he had no gift list or feeling for the season. He just needed to get out of his apartment, because he was convinced the Phantom Singer would soon serenade him again. She hadn't sung since the early morning hours of October 18th, and no other paranormal event had occurred since then. The waiting between manifestations scraped the junior's nerves worse than the manifestations themselves. Something was due to happen in this peculiar, extended, almost casual haunting under which he had suffered for more than two years, since finding the quarter in his cheeseburger. While all around him in the streets, people bustled in good cheer. Junior slouched along in a sour mood, temporarily having forgotten to look for the bright side. Inevitably, man of the arts that he was, his slouching brought him to several galleries. In the windows of the fourth, not one of his favorite establishments, he saw an eight by ten photograph, a seraphim white. The girl smiled, as stunningly beautiful as he remembered her, but she was no longer fifteen, as she had been when he had last seen her. Since her death and childbirth nearly three years ago, she had matured and grown lovelier than ever. If Junior had not been such a rational man, schooled in logic and reason by the books of Caesar's Ed, he might have snapped there in the street, before the photograph of Seraphim, might have begun to shake and sob and babble until he wound up in a psychiatric ward. But although his trembling knees felt no more supported than Aspic, they didn't dissolve under him. He couldn't breathe for a minute, and his vision darkened at the periphery, and the noise of passing traffic suddenly sounded like agonizing shrieks of people, tortured beyond endurance. But he held fast to his wits long enough to realize the name of the photo which served as the centerpiece of a poster, read Celestina White in four-inch letters, not Seraphim. The poster announced an upcoming show, titled This Momentous Day, by the young artist calling herself Celestina White. Days for the exhibition were Friday, January 2nd through Saturday, January 27th. Warily, Junior ventured into the gallery to make inquiries. He expected the staff to express utter bafflement at the name Celestina White. Expect the poster to have vanished when he returned to the display window. Instead, he was given a small color brochure featuring samples of the artist's work. It also contained the same photograph of her smiling face that graced the window. According to the brief biographic note with the picture, Celestina White was a graduate of San Francisco's Academy of Art College. She had been born and raised in Spruce Hills, Oregon, the daughter of a minister. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify, uh, leave a review on Podchaser, copy and paste that in the Good Pods, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts. Um, you could donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app, there's a tip jar. 
Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.